The outline says victory over evil. Now Janet is a young city analyst who professes faith in Jesus. Her life is actually very well. She's doing well except that she finds it very difficult to sleep at night sometimes because she has terrible nightmares. In fact, in one of her nightmares, she sees people chasing, abusing, and even torturing her. Uh, Janet has no idea why this is happening. Uh, She actually wants the dreams to stop. It's very scary. Imagine living a life like that. John is 40 years old. Uh, John professed faith in Jesus when he was 18 years old. But over the last few years, life has been a constant struggle for John. You see, John battles a secret addiction to alcohol and adult entertainment. He says this, he says, I feel miserable. I have backslidden for years. I don't want to sin. He says, I do not want these addictions. I hate myself for who I am, what I am, and what I do. I am an hypocrite, and I just can't go on like this. Jack is a 35-year-old man. A fifth broke into his flat, into Jack's flat. And when the fifth broke into Jack's flat, that incident left him devastated. And Jack now suffers from depression and acute anxiety. He doesn't even feel safe just sitting in his flat. He has lost interest in life, and in fact, because he lost interest in life, he eventually lost his job. So now all that Jack does is just he just numbs his pain by watching TV and playing video games. He just wants to escape from life. His life looks meaningless. Janet, John, Jack, all of these are real people. All of these are real people facing real difficult situations. And all of these people are facing real evil in their lives. Today, we are talking about victory over evil. Where can we find victory against evil that is constantly knocking on our doors? We need to know the answer to this question because, you see, even though your name is not Janet, your name may not be John or Jack, all of us here are powerless against evil. And this is our first observation in your outline. Everyone is powerless against evil. Now, if you are here last week, uh, you, see, you remember that the Ammonites have declared war on Israel. And they have put soldiers on Israeli soil. Uh, in fact, there are soldiers that are now in Gilead. Ammon is on the eastern side of Israel, and they have taken some soldiers and occupied Gilead. The, the problem is that you remember, is that the Israelis have no one to lead them. And so out of desperation, what do they do? They turn to the crime boss, Jephthah. Look at chapter 11, verse 5, just to refresh your memories. Chapter 11, verse 5 says this, And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come! And be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. 
And you remember what happens there, and our brother David read it for us. Jephthah agrees. And so what does, he, what does he do? He immediately sends a message to the Ammonite to resolve the matter peacefully. Jephthah doesn't want war. So he asks the king of Ammonite to, you know, just reach a peace settlement. But the king of the Ammonite is not interested. He's already occupying the land. And so he turns it down. Look at verse 11 of verse 13 of chapter 11. He says this, And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel coming from Egypt took away my land from the Anon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. He's not interested. So what does Jephthah do? Jephthah again sends a second message. He makes it clear that Israel will not surrender to Ammon. Look at verse 27 of chapter 11. Jephthah says, this is how he concludes his argument. We looked at this Sunday evening. He says this, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So that's where we left things. We have effectively, Jephthah said, look, I put my cards down. I've told you, you're going to leave our land. And the question now is, what will the king of the Ammonites do? Well, the Ammonites want war. That's verse 28. Look at verse 28. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. And you can see the logic. They are already occupying part of Israel. Why would they just now turn back and go back to Ammon? Now is not the time for turning back if you are the king of the Ammonites. Ammon is violently occupying parts of Israel, and as far as they are concerned, the negotiations now should not be about them going back, it should be about the terms of surrender for Israel. In one corner, if you like, we have a bunch of Israeli tribes oppressed for 18 years, led by a crime boss, Jephthah. And in the other camp, we have... A powerful kingdom, Ammon, is already occupying Moab. Friends, this is like Ammon versus Israel here. It's like Turkey United taking on Man City. It's just, it's a no contest. They are powerless, the people of Israel. All human beings are powerless against evil in the world. All human beings are powerless against evil in the world. Last year, a family in Somerset, you may have picked up this story, installed a CCTV app on their mobile. And the idea of this CCTV is that if a few breaks in, you can see it on the app. You know, the sensors are detected, you can see it on the app. So the family installed this thing, and then what they did is they took a holiday 120 miles away. So they went somewhere on holiday. And you guessed what happened. While they were on holiday, one of the sensors get tricked, okay? You know, a fifth is immediately breaking into the house. They receive the alert on the phone that somebody is breaking in. And they go to this mobile, they start looking at the mobile. And they can see 120 miles away, the fifth breaking in. But you see, the problem is that they are so far away that they can't really do anything about it. By the time they get on the phone trying to alert the police, you know, they are brought... By the time they tell a brother to go look over the house, the thief has gone into the house already. He's stolen jewelry, passports, 
Uh, Indian gold jewelry, I'm told, is store nearly everything valuable in the house. They had the information, but they were powerless to do anything about it. And as I thought about that story, I thought, we are all like that family. There is no one here who does not realize that we live in an evil world. But that knowledge that you live in an evil world does not actually help you. It's not enough. Because at the end of the day, all it does is it reminds you that you are powerless against the evil around you. Friends, you cannot stop people mistreating you all the time. You cannot stop people you love and care about letting you down. Even if they love you now, one day they will let you down. You cannot always keep criminals at bay. Just ask that family, even if you have installed a wonderful gadget. And we know this for ourselves, that the list is endless. We are powerless against evil in this world. Why are we powerless against evil in the world? Why? We are powerless because evil has infected not just the world we live in individually, it's infected the entire thing, all of us. The world, the infrastructure is corroded by sin. Romans 3 verse 9 to 12 says this, it reminds us actually that Paul would not read it, but it reminds us, doesn't it, that since sin entered the world, sin has had power over us. You can look that up. Paul reminds us in Romans 9, verse 12, that everyone, no one does good. The, the, the psalmist says that no one does good in Psalm 12. Not even one. Everyone here is born hostage to evil within us. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have evil within your heart and it holds you hostage. And because you have evil within your heart, you do evil to other people. And they do evil to you. Now, as I've said, this is not rocket science. To some extent, I'm just stating the obvious. You're probably saying, we know that already. Because the truth of the matter is that all of us recognize this. And all of us want the evil in our lives to end. <coughs> Friends, who doesn't want to be thought of as honest? as faithful, as loving, as just. Everyone does. I have never met a real person who wants to see more evil in our lives. I haven't. That stuff is only in the Avengers and, and film. It's only in the movies where you have a bad guy who says, let's have more evil in the world. In real life, all of us recognize evil is a reality. And we want deliverance. From it. We all want victory over evil. And the truth of this passage is that we cannot deliver ourselves from evil. True deliverance from evil only comes from God himself. Only God can deliver us. And this is our second observation. God delivers his people from evil. Point number one, you are powerless against evil. The good news is point number two. God delivers his people from evil. Notice here, friends, that we see here that Israel is powerless against Ammon. But then something interesting happens. God now enters the field of play between Israel and Ammon. Look at verse 29. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Let's just freeze that. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is coming on Jephthah at this moment. And what he's doing here is like the Spirit of God coming on Jephthah is like in amateur football, isn't it? When your team, you're playing amateur football and your team is 18 nil down. And then suddenly a professional footballer pans up. And then all of a sudden, everything improves on your side. He joins your team and everything improves. The passing becomes better. Everyone is running again. Everyone is calling for the ball. Why? Because you guys are amateurs. The professional is on the shore and is on your side. And all of a sudden, there is hope. You are 18 nil down, but you know you're going to win. Because he showed up. God has showed up like that here. He has showed up, and Jephthah, notice, is in top gear. Look at verse 29, how it continues. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Friends, do you feel the speed of the verbs in that verse? We are told he passed through Gilead, passed on to Mizpah, passed on to the Ammonites. What's going on here? What the author of Judges is saying is that the Spirit of God does not dwell in lazy feet. No. When the Spirit of God comes upon us, He makes us busy for His work. And He has come upon Jephthah, and we can sense the tension, the agency in the work. And you know, despite Jephthah delaying the work to do something puzzling in verse 30 to 31, which we'll look at next week, we see that God agently leads him onto battle. Look at verse 32 to verse 33. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroa to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities as far as Abedeokarim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. What's happened here is that Jephthah is so, is so ridiculous. God has come on Jephthah with such power that he has wiped out all the neighboring cities that, 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 that Ammon has occupied and he's gone even further into Ammon territory. He's created the buffer around the, around the, 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 the border between Ammon and Israel. The hero here is not Jephthah. The hero is God who has empowered his chosen judge to serve them with a standing victory. Don't miss a key word here. Notice what he says in verse 33. How has Jephthah 1? He says, with a great blow. The original Hebrew word there, friends, conveys, conveys the image of God defeating the Ammonites like a great plague or even a powerful hurricane. This is a stunning, devastating victory. God has delivered through Jephthah. You know, someone shared online how they feel about God. Here's what they said. They said this, God frightens me. The thought of there being an all-powerful person who I will meet when he die, when I die, who will judge me for my sins, who commands the universe and does whatever he desires, is very scary. And then he asks this, who wouldn't be afraid of that? 
And as I thought about that, you know what? That person had a valid point. Friends, you would never live next door to a person so powerful, so infinite. But why would you do that? You wouldn't. If all they had was such amazing power, you wouldn't. But the God of the Bible we see here is not just infinitely powerful, he's also infinitely loving and gracious. And he's infinitely loving and gracious to those who know and love him. I want to say to you this morning that yes, this God who delivers such a great blow against the Ammonite should frighten you if you continue to refuse to surrender to him. Because he's not a puppy. He's not a puppy. He's not a pet. And so this God should frighten you. A God who can deliver such a devastating blow should frighten you. Because God opposes those who oppose him. The writer of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. It should frighten you. But if you belong to God, God being powerful towards us like this, is good news. It is good news because the God who's so powerful, if you're truly surrendered to him, is now your friend. My maker, my healer, he's also my friend. Because to have a God who's so powerful, isn't that what we all want? Don't we want powerful friends in our lives? Don't we do everything to get close to the powerful, the rich? Don't women think carefully who they marry and whether that person who supports them is powerful enough financially to support them? They do. Men do as well these days. <laughs> it's all equal now. We want to be close to people who are powerful. And, and the wonderful news is that in Jesus, God, this God who's so infinitely powerful and infinitely loving, gives us victory over evil. Because if we belong to him, we are his children. And that's the final point of these verses. We have victory over evil through Jesus. So point number one, everyone is powerless against evil. Big problem. But the good news is that God delivers his people from evil. And why is this so important? Because if you belong to this God in Jesus, you have victory over evil. Look at these verses again. You see, there is a danger, I just want to say, when we read the Old Testament, to read it like it's about us. Have made this mistake, I'm sure you have as well. When we read the story of David killing Goliath, we like to think we are David and our boss at work is Goliath. So we open it up and there, there you go, I claim this verse, it's mine. But friends, let's mature in the faith. Let's go on to grow. Let us remember that the Bible is written for our benefit, but it is not about you. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is one book about one story that culminates in one person, Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation is one story. Everything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is pointing us forward to Jesus. I didn't make this up. Jesus said it. 
Luke 24, verse 25 to 28 says this. This is what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus. Luke 22, verse 25 to 28. It's important that you read this for yourself. He said this, And he said to them, All foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And when what did Jesus do? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, I'm sure he went through judges, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going. And you can read on. But Jesus, they appointed that the entire scripture points to him. Jesus said this to the rabbis of the day. You look into the scriptures because you think in the scriptures you will find life. But those scriptures point to me, he said, in John 5. I'm laboring this point because why? Because I want each and every person here, when you read your Bibles, the first question you ask when you open the Bible is not, what am I in this story? No. The first question you should ask is, what does this passage teach me about Jesus? How does this wonderful passage from the Holy Spirit point me to Jesus? Because, friends, only if you ask that question first, then you will know how then you need to apply it. Every doctrinal error I have ever come across has come from people making themselves the center of the scriptures. And I plead with you, if you are reading not the Bible in this way, especially the Old Testament scriptures, you will mislead yourself and you mislead others into great error. It's vital that you get a handle on how to read the scriptures. So let's apply this principle here quickly for us. How do these events here point to Jesus as our deliverer? Well, the answer is that it reminds us that Israel needs a permanent solution. It reminds us that Israel here needs a permanent solution. You see here, if Judges was playing in the cinema, the last sentence of verse 33 would be the end. Let's read verse 33. What does verse 33 say? It says, the last sentence, it says, So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And it looks like happy thereafter, doesn't it? But we know there is no happily thereafter. We know the Ammonites come back. When do the Ammonites come back? They come back in Samuel. But who's the most famous Ammonite? Tobias, the Ammonite in Nehemiah. They will keep coming back even until the time of the Maccabees. We also know that Israel will sin again because God must raise new judges. We're going to meet Abdon. We're going to meet Samson. These are judges God will raise. We'll see next week that Jephthah is a good judge, but he's not a perfect judge. Even now, there's cracks emerging in his faith armor. God mentions him in Hebrews 11, but we'll see that the vow next week that he even begins to make here will bring terrible suffering on himself. Jephthah is not the judge we need. Jephthah is not the judge Israel desires. We see here that Jephthah is merely a road sign pointing us forward to the main event. Pointing us forward to Jesus 1,200 years later. How does Jephthah do that? Well, we we, we entered on this last week. 
Like, like Jephthah, Jesus enters this world through what? A scandalous birth. Jephthah is born by a prostitute. Jesus is born by an unmarried teenager. It's a com- is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And it's a great scandal, isn't it? Joseph wants to put him away. In fact, it's even more than that. In Jesus' own ancestral line, how many prostitutes have we got? Two. Rehab and Tema, descendants of Je- ancestors of Jesus. You see the parallels between Jephthah and Jesus. And like Jephthah, Jesus, God's perfect savior, did his work. How? Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, verse 37 to 38 will help you with that. My point I'm making with all of this is that just as the event is more important than the signs leading up to the event, Jesus is superior in every way to Jephthah in person and work. Jesus is God himself walking among us. You've got to let that sink in. Jesus is God. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says this about Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. What's the name of this son? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is God who has come to deliver all who trust in him from evil. Galatians 1 verse 3 to 4 says this, Grace to you and and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Are you a follower of Jesus this morning? If you are, then hold on to this precious truth. You are already victorious over evil through Jesus. As long as you are in this world, this evil will keep knocking on your door. So every day, fix your gaze on Jesus hanging there on the cross. Are you a follower of Jesus this morning? Then look at him hanging there on the cross for you. Because you see, as Jesus dies on that brutal Roman cross, you are there with him. On that cross, Jesus has dealt a great blow against the powers of darkness for you. Are you trusting in Jesus today? Then take a look at the tomb of Jesus, it is empty. Jesus is alive. Death cannot hold him. And you are alive with him. You know what that means? It means you are a new creature. Yes, you still do evil, but you still, because you're still in this body. But because the tomb is empty, the old you died on the cross with Christ and buried in the tomb. The power of evil no longer has dominion over you. You now live in a new kingdom of light under the perfect kingship of our Lord Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus today? Then know that even as you sit here this morning, 
you are also sat in heaven right now. Ephesians 2 verse 4 to 6 says this, Go by God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Jesus. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus today? Then know that you have a great future with Jesus. You will see Jesus face to face and live with him in the new heavens and new earth. Have you surrendered to Jesus? If the answer is yes, then this is your reality. So whatever evil you are facing right now, bring it now to Jesus. Surrender it to him. Let him handle it. Jesus has delivered you from evil already. Through his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Surely he can handle any difficult evil problem that you are facing now. Because you are already sat with him in heaven. Your prayers have immediate access to him. So, so surrender it to him. But some of you here have not surrendered to Jesus. Let us be clear that the victory here does not belong to you. It does not belong to everyone in this room. This victory we're talking about here does not belong to those who think little of Jesus. It does not belong to those who have no genuine love for our Lord Jesus Christ. It does not belong to those who are at peace with sin in their lives. It does not belong to those who through their actions and thoughts Constantly and willfully stab Jesus in the back. The real question for you this morning is this. Do you love Jesus? I must ask myself this question. Do I love Jesus? Do you love Jesus enough to surrender all your life to him? Can you say with Peter, Lord, you know I love you. You know I desire you. And please, please help me to love you more. Can you say that? We're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about a change of direction. Are you desiring Christ more? Can you say that? One of the first things that God does when you surrender your life to him and become a true follower of Jesus is that he pours his love in your heart and that love of God pulls you to himself like gravity. You can't resist him. The love of God keeps you firmly planted like gravity in the things of God. Because you see, being with Jesus stops being a hobby, stops being a job. It is your passion. It is your passion to live for him. Do you have this? If you do not, then you are not converted. Simple as that. If you do not have that, then you have not experienced genuine conversion. You are not born again. You need to urgently come before God and truly 
repent. Jesse Rao, in one of his books, tells a story of a mother whose daughter ran away from home and lived a life of sin. No one knew where she was. But after a long time, the daughter came back and the relationship with her mom was restored. She even repented and came to trust in Jesus. People asked the mother, how did you bring her back? She said, I prayed for her night and day. And then she added, I never went to bed at night without leaving my front door unlocked and the door on the latch. She said, I thought if my daughter comes back some night and when I'm in bed, she should never be able to say that she found the door of her mother's home shut and she could not get in. Of course, this was a time before doorbells, isn't it? And so it turned out that daughter came back one night. She tried the door and found the door open. She came in immediately and her life was changed forever. You see, friends, God used that open door to save our soul. And that open door of our home is a perfect illustration of God's heart of love for you this morning. I want to say to you this morning that if you are resisting Jesus, the door of God's mercy is open at present for you. The door, friends, is not yet locked. Even now you can come to Jesus. Even now he has left the door open for you. You can come to him. You can repent of your sins. You can surrender your life to him. And based on the work of the cross, he will take you in. God wants you back home with him. And God will be very glad to have you finally home. And God will hide you under his wings. You will no longer be wandering like, like that daughter. But I want to tell you the door is open for now, my friend. For now. It won't remain open for you forever. It might close immediately you get out there and get hit by a car. It might close tomorrow. Because we live in an evil world. So I beg you, don't stay outside with evil. Come home to Jesus. Receive victory over evil forever. Amen.